0: In this episode, I'm speaking with Susanna Zaretsky, author of One-Eyed Princess: Gaining Depth in Sight and Mind. Her blog is found at oneeyedprincess.wordpress.com. We'll be discussing the unique challenges of vision therapy, her and vision surgery. Suggestions for ways to help someone going through vision therapy processes. And we'll also be discussing the psychological challenges, how cathartic it was to write about her vision therapy journey, being an advocate for vision therapy and raising awareness, and also our different perspectives on 3D movies. I hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to today's podcast. I'm speaking today with Susanna Zarysky. Susanna is the author of One-Eyed Princess, and she was born with strabismus, which is a disorder causing misalignment of the eyes. At the age of 29, she read an article by British neurologist Dr. Oliver Sacks explaining that those with her visual disability are stereoblind, unable to see with both eyes at the same time, and thus have no depth perception. There's this phrase that ignorance is bliss, Zaraisky said. When it comes to your health, medical ignorance is not bliss. I was absolutely devastated. How could I have lived this long without knowing I was partially blind? With corrective lenses and vision therapy, Zoraeski was able to train her eyes to work together and her brain to process vision from both eyes. And I became aware of Susanna when I started vision therapy and I found her blog, which is entitled One-Eyed Princess. Now, I was also blogging at the time and appreciated finding someone else who was sharing their journey. And so so thank you, Susanna. Thank you. I'm glad that you stayed in touch. Yeah, it's it's been a long journey for both of us, hasn't it? Excruciatingly
1: long. <laughs> yes.
0: Right. Yeah. And so I've shared my story. And so I think my listeners know that I have the same kinds of issues. My strabismus did not result in me having amblyopia like yours did, but Mm. certainly, you know, very much the same types of issues come from not using your eyes together. Right. Yeah. When, When did you first realize that you had a vision issue?
1: Well, I actually think it was probably when kids made fun of me in school, because I had to wear these really thick glasses. So they call me four eyes. Mm-hmm. And you know, back in the day, I, I think now glasses aren't as thick, but the glasses I had were really thick, right? And I don't even know if the technology existed to make thin lenses. So I had like these Coke bottle glasses, which would make my eyes like super big. And so I knew I had a vision issue, because otherwise, I wouldn't be wearing these really thick glasses. But I didn't know... And obviously I knew that when I took off my glasses, I had um, a wandering eye. So when I was three years old, when I came to the United States, I got surgery to supposedly straighten my eyes because I was born cross-eyed. But the surgery left me with a wandering eye. So I had a lazy eye. And it wasn't evident when I wore glasses, but if I took my glasses off, like when I took ballet and gymnastics as a kid, people could see that I had this wandering eye. And then when uh, when I really wanted to get contact lenses when I was 15, I put on the contact lenses and people would not know what how to look at me because they would be like looking at one eye and they'd be confused because the other eye would move. And that, that made me super conscious of the fact that I had uh, asymmetric eyes. Mm-hmm. And then I asked my pediatric ophthalmologist if there's anything I could do. And he said, well, yeah, you could get another surgery. So when I was 17, I got a second surgery to cosmetically straighten my eyes. But here, Denise, the thing was, he said, the doctor never told me that there was anything wrong with my vision. I mean, I had to still wear correct lenses because I had um, an astigmatism and you know, other things, I think. But the doctor never said, oh, you don't see in three dimensions. Right. Oh, you have trouble with depth perception. You're going to have trouble playing tennis in school. Oh, by the way, if you have trouble with any sports in school or partner dancing, this is why. Never told me. Right. And what kind of gave me a clue, but I wasn't aware of it at the time. It's only in retrospect that I realized it was a clue was that in preparation for my surgery, I had to do a type of vision therapy, but it wasn't with a vision therapist. I think they, I forgot what they call it. There was an assistant to the doctor who told me, who taught me how to do what do they call them pencil ups. When you bring the pencil close to your nose and you move it out and then you can, the, the pencil will double. Mm-hmm. And when I was doing these exercises with this therapist, I said to her, oh my gosh, things are moving again. And she's like, what are you talking about? And I said, well, I always thought I had this magical power because in the mornings before I put on my glasses, I saw objects moving. And I'm not kidding. I really thought I had a magical power that I could move objects. And she said, yeah, you and all the other kids who have Binocular vision problems. You think you have this power, but it's really that your eyes are just not able to align and keep the object in one place. So you don't have a magical power. You're not moving the object, but in your brain, your brain is showing you that the object is moving. But really, you're just switching from eye to eye. But I didn't know that what binocular vision like. I didn't know that that meant I didn't have 3D vision. I didn't know I didn't have depth perception. I just realized that this childhood fantasy I had was wrong. Yeah. And I was afraid to like admit this to my friends because if I was seventeen, you are seventeen years old, telling my friends I thought I had a magical power, they probably would have thought I was nuts, right? You know, that's like the age where you don't want to tell your friends these. Like maybe when you're seven years old, you could tell your friends that you have this magical power. Not when you're seventeen. So I just buried that, you know, in my memory. And then when I read the article by Oliver Sacks when I was 29, it was the article in the New Yorker called Stereo Sue about how Susan Berry, Sue Berry, um, was able to develop 3D vision in her late 40s doing vision therapy. I was like, wait a minute, (laughs) I must be like her. And so I took the article to the optometrist I was seeing at the time. And I showed him the article and I said, doctor, do I not see in 3D? And he just looked at me as though I were from some other planet. And he's like, wait, you didn't know? I said, no, I didn't know. And he was in shock, but he was like trying to hide, you know, his shock. And he said, and he did some tests on me, like with, um, you know, that, what's that fly dot thing? You know, you look at something, there's this like fly stereogram or something. And
0: people oh, who can see stereos. Sure. Yeah. Okay. Sure which one you mean, but. Okay.
1: I, but anyway, uh, it's a typical thing I've seen in different, in different doctor's offices, where if you can see in 3D, you pr- probably see the fly, like coming off the. The, the, the thing, but I, I didn't see it. He did some other tests and he's like, yeah, you only see it with one eye at a time. And he's like, oh, but it's not a big deal. You know, I have this aunt and she can't see the tree outside her window and she doesn't seem to mind. And I'm like, no, no, no. If there's a tree outside my window, I want to see it. Right. But that's what I found out. And it's, it's crushing that it took me until the age of 29 to find out.
0: It took me, well, I knew that I had issues, but... It, it took a long time before I found out there was anything we could do about it because okay. the, jo- the doctor just does brush it off like you described. They just say, well, that's how you see. So they stopped asking me to do those tests after a while when I said, you know, I see this over here and this, you know, this with one eye and this with the other eye, like the, the example where the, they have the musical staff and then the notes on the other side. You're supposed to tell which line the note was on.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And I, I would guess for years. And then finally, after a while, I was like, I see the notes over here and the lines over here. Oh. And they finally said, oh, well, we won't have you do those anymore then. <laughs> and I was like, okay, what does that mean? Right? And they still asked me to do them again. They didn't always make very good notes about it. So that's kind of the same type of a an issue, I guess, with doctors just not really letting patients know how they're seeing.
1: Yeah. And I think it's truly because doctors probably were never taught, you know, what it means to have this. And I know because I, I work in, in high tech and sometimes people who work on products, they have to make sure that the products work for people who have different accessibility issues. Mm-hmm. So they have to make sure like a screen reader can read their app. And so, or they have to make sure somebody with a Braille reader can use it. And so sometimes, well, if the person is doing the right thing, they do accessibility testing to make sure that whatever product they, they have can work for people, you know, with different um, disabilities. Right. And what that does is, first of all, it makes somebody test it and, and use the product. And I have seen the faces of people try to listen to a website using a screen reader, which is like this robotic voice that's reading to everything that's on the screen. Mm-hmm. And when you hear, first of all, how terrible it sounds and how hard it is to move through the website and the fact that a lot of things that are, you can see on the website are missed by the screen reader. Mm-hmm. So the screen reader is just reading the text. But if it's not uh, coded right, the screen reader is not going to pick up on a lot of things. That builds empathy. In the person testing it, especially if that person is, is sighted and is like, oh my gosh, I'm creating this product, and people who are blind or who have vision issues and are using a screen reader aren't going to be able to use my product. They're like, oh, I've got to go fix this, right? Sure. Doctors aren't taught, I don't think, in medical school, okay, go walk around and go put a blindfold on one of your eyes for a couple of days and go see what it's like to see in 2D. Mm-hmm.
0: They don't. So they have no idea. True. And even if they did put that blindfold on one eye, there's a chance that their memory would make up the difference for a lot of it. So they yes. probably still wouldn't have complete empathy.
1: Correct. Unless maybe they did it for a long time until finally the brain broke down, but they probably would like lose emp- lose patience by then. <laughs> right. Like, all right, I did this for five minutes. It's fine. Okay. Go look, t- teach me how to go carve into people and you know, fix their eyes or something. right? Um, And and that lack of empathy, that lack of understanding is a huge thing that's missing. Mm. And I don't know what it was like for you, but when I was going through vision therapy, I wanted to even talk to a psychologist who understood what it's like as an adult to learn how to see anew Mm. and to have all these challenges. And when I went to psychologists, they just looked at me like I was cyclops telling them about what it's like to see with one eye because they couldn't un- understand it. And I'm like, who do I talk to? If I can't talk to the doctor, who do I talk to?
0: Right. And I don't know that there are any psychologists that are even able to do that kind of counseling. No. I mean, I know one
1: psychologist who specializes in people who, has, who have disabilities, okay. but you know, she may not know about all of the disabilities, but at least somebody who deals with people with disabilities might have an idea of like what it's like when your experience of the world is vastly different than, you know, 95% of the population. Correct. But then you've got to search and like, what if you're in a rural area, you might not find somebody. You probably have to look online and do, well now everything is through zoom
0: and Skype anyway, because of the <laughs> coronavirus, but like, you know, it, you would take a lot of searching. It would definitely. there. It's not the way it is with uh, finding a vision therapy doctor where you can go on COVD and type yeah. in, your area and find out who is there. Yes. There's not going to be a, any kind of a website directory that will give you any of that kind of information. No. There are a lot of psychological issues that go along with changing how you see for sure. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And and when you were doing your therapy, you decided to start a blog about the time you started your therapy too. Is that right?
1: It is. Cause I'm a writer. And so For me, writing is a catharsis. And when I was describing this to my friends before I started it, before I started vision therapy, several of them actually maybe was when I had started vision therapy and I was telling them like, oh my gosh, things look different and I'm seeing double. And you know, they looked at me because they hadn't gone through it, they looked at me and they said, Wow, what you're experiencing is so extraordinary and different, you need to blog about it because it's gonna help you remember the whole process that you went through. And I'm so glad I did. And and because I blogged about it, that's how I met other people virtually, you know, online, because there were very few people at the time writing about this online. Um, or I don't even remember YouTube. I actually know I saw some doctors do YouTube videos about this, but not patients. Mm-hmm. And so that's the way I created that community that I didn't have. I mean, it's not like the people who wrote to me became my psychologists, but the fact that I could explain myself to people who were going through similar things or who were interested in vision therapy was really good for me in
0: terms of feeling like I wasn't so alone. Right. And vice versa for the people reading about it. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. That's, that's how I felt when I was reading uh, your posts and commenting here and there. So I, I was really glad that it was there. And then you took that blog and you made it into a book, right? Yeah, I made it into a book.
1: So I printed out all of the blog posts and I went through all of them. I was on a flight and so I had nothing else to do. So it was great. I just (laughs) went through it, decided which ones to keep. And then I contacted the people who had commented like you and asked for permission to publish their comments. Um, and some things like some of my blogs were kind of repetitive. So I needed to, you know, cut those. And then I got help from an editor and then I just added more information about my whole process. And then I got permission from Burnell, which is the manufacturer of a lot of vision therapy equipment, um, to use images. So I could explain like the equipment that I was using.
0: Okay, and where those pictures came from. (laughs) Yes, yeah, because I definitely, like Humpty
1: Dumpty and all these other things, you know, the the stereograms and vectorgrams and all that kind of stuff.
0: Right.
1: And um, it's really good that I got all those images in there because we were using, you know, vision therapy, you use equipment that people have never heard of, have never seen. Like if you tell somebody, oh, I'm doing physical therapy and I have to use resistance bands. Well, most people have seen resistance bands because they've seen them at the gym, you know, those like elastic things that move. Sure. So people can imagine it, but talking about, oh, I look at these two quite vectorgrams, which are like these two circles and I have to put the circles on top of each other. And then unless I show a picture, no one's going to understand what I'm talking about. Sure. Um, and it's interesting because just a few months ago, somebody contacted me from Russia who had, was in, who had seen one of my videos um, in Russian about vision therapy and binocular vision. Mm-hmm. And he um said that he was trying to find a doctor in Russia to help his daughter who had uh, binocular vision problems. He couldn't find one. So he created his own Brock strings because he had seen the picture in my in my video and probably looked online. So he created it himself. Mm-hmm. And then in my book, so he downloaded my book in English and then I, either he could read it in English or he used Google Translate to translate it to Russian, whatever he did. He saw the image of one of the, I think we called it the Batwing. In, it's not the official name, but it's one of the machine like, things I got from Burnell to do my exercises at home and so this man in Russia couldn't order this from the United States, so he just made it up himself by seeing the picture he was able to you know make it I don't know if that's an infringement of copyright, but whatever <laughs> I don't really care I mean, he, he needed, no, right <laughs> yeah I mean he was doing it for his daughter, and so the fact that I was sharing my story and you know I wrote the book. It's it's helping other people, you know, especially parents of children who are going through this because the parents are scared. They don't understand why, you know, why their little kid is getting headaches, you know, from doing vision therapy or whatever their side effects are.
0: Right. Well, some of them haven't even found vision therapy yet, and they're wondering why their child is struggling in school. Yes. Yes. Or why their kid can't read. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Definitely. What would you say are the biggest misconceptions that we go through as stereo blind people?
1: Well, first that we don't even know that we're stereo blind. So that's a misconception that we don't even know who we are. Mm -hmm. And then that our experiences are similar, I think, because um, I've had people comment in some of my videos and say, Oh, I can see in 3d, but I they have whatever, strabismus or have amblyopia. And I'm like, have you ever been tested by a doctor? Well, no. Well, so then how do you know you can see in 3D? Well, because my vision is normal. I'm like, I thought my vision was normal too. Right. Until I specifically asked this doctor when I was 29, am I like Sue Berry? Mm-hmm. So unless you're tested, you're not going to know. And I don't know if being able to see a 3D movie and seeing the 3D effects is enough of a test if someone can see in 3D, I know I can't. I mean, I can go to a 3D movie. I pay the extra seven dollars, and I've just wasted seven dollars, you know, for the 3D glasses. And so, I think one of the misconceptions might be that our experiences are similar. I know somebody who is um, who has amblyopia; he can't drive. Right. I can drive with difficulty, but I can drive.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. And then one of the things I I do mention, you know, in my blog and my book is that I'm multilingual, and I do think the fact that I have a visual disability m- makes me like more keen to pay attention to audio signals and maybe, you know, smells. Okay. Um, but not everybody who has a visual disability necessarily is able to become a polyglot or is an accomplished musician or whatever can, can you know, hear sounds from two miles or, you know, whatever way. Right. It's, some of us can, some of us can't. It could be that, my hearing and my listening ability was already good, but I had to develop it even more because of my visual disability.
0: Okay. But that's yeah. all hearsay. Yeah. And I, no one's ever going to do any kind of research on it that will prove one way or another that that's the case or not, right? Exactly. There's so little research about us in general.
1: So I think you and I would probably agree if we're going to spend money on research, it should be on what to do to help us.
0: That, <laughs> sure. Right? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, which also is probably going to be a little bit of a struggle, I would say. And, and, you know, I've seen lots of different statistics on how many people are affected as well. You give the statistic in your book that you think it may be 3% of the population that have strabismus specifically. I've heard larger statistics, especially yeah. when they include. Other visual issues like what my son has, um, convergence insufficiency. Yes. You know, yeah. there's, there, there's definitely other things that are playing into people's difficulties in reading or concentrating or, you know, ability to do schoolwork or whatever we might be talking about visually.
1: Most definitely. And then there are people who develop this from a stroke or from an accident, some head trauma. Um, when I was going to the UC Berkeley binocular vision program, the doctors there were dealing with people who had, you know, trauma cases Mm -hmm. and that they, they did vision therapy to reinstate, you know, some of their vision. So, you know, I have seen 3%, I've seen 5%, whatever it is, we're not extremely insignificant. Let's say it is 5%. That means one out of every 20 people have it. And I remember when I, when someone first told me, wow, one out of every 20 people have some sort of a binocular vision disorder, I thought, okay, how many people live on my street? A hundred people maybe live on my street, maybe more. Mm-hmm. That means there are four
0: other people on my street who might have this. Sure. And if you look at it from the perspective of a, of a classroom teacher, there can mm-hmm. have one or two kids in every class, depending on the size of the class, yeah, have an issue. and exactly. I I saw that when I substitute taught in a, in a classroom situation. I could pick out the kid. and when really? I, yeah. And when I mentioned it to the teacher or the principal, I was told, "You can't say anything. You can't tell anyone that you think that this child needs to be tested because the school was so afraid that someone would expect that they pay for it because they suggested it you know, you're not the first person
1: to tell me this. I know somebody else who had convergence insufficiency and she was a teacher and she said the same thing. The schools told her she couldn't say anything to the kids, but she knew how she had suffered as a child because she didn't understand why she had so much trouble reading and she only figured out as an adult and she did vision therapy. And about two years ago, there was, I I live in California. So about two years ago, there was a bill that would require in the legislature that would require that all kids got a comprehensive vision exam in school.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And unfortunately one of the medical companies, which I probably shouldn't mention, but a big medical company, (laughs) um, a big health management organization was against it Mm
0: -hmm.
1: because that would cut into their profits. Because that means that if every child, you know, anyone over 18 had to get a comprehensive vision exam, more kids were going to get vision exams and that means that the, this HMO is going to make less money. And it was, uh, for me, that's criminal. Mm-hmm. And um, luckily my late, my local um, assemblyman Evan Lowe was one of the co-sponsors of this legislation. His father's an optometrist. And I wrote to all the people in the committee uh, asking for them, you know, cause it got stuck in committee. It got, it got killed in committee. Mm-hmm. And, I've also seen, you know, a study that shows that the kids who are in juvenile hall, um, there's a high percentage of them who have vision problems, dyslexia, whatever, right. because it was never diagnosed. Because I did those vision tests in school where, you know, you just look at those letters on the on the board. Right. And no one told me after I did that test that, oh, I was partially blind. Right. Uh I've seen pictures of like how you could even be dyslexic and and somehow figure out those letters if you just, you know, right. And so all these vision things get completely mis not, not even misdiagnosed, just completely ignored. Sure.
0: And, you know, Utah actually does have a law like that on the books. Good. Every child has to have a comprehensive vision exam. Nobody knows what that means. It's, it's not, it's not enforced. Gosh. They, they, don't, they don't have a clue what it means. And there's only a couple of doctors in the state that were, are actually capable of doing that type of an exam, I think, you know, because I took my daughter to my regular optometrist and had her checked because I knew she was just like me. She had had a, an eye turn when she was three and put in glasses. Mm-hmm. And, and he said to me, She has a little bit of a vision, a little bit of a tracking issue, but she's fine. Mm -hmm. And I took her to my, my vision therapy doctor and she was just like me and needed vision therapy for a fair amount of time to resolve the issues that she had. Wow. So it's definitely not something that's fixed yet. (laughs) You know, it's not legislation in in place. Doesn't fix it. Unfortunately. That's,
1: and basically you have to be in the know to suspect that there could be a problem, but then given that most people are ignorant about this and doctors are ignorant about this,
0: then how are we going to be in the know? Right. Well, and you had some other uh, work going. I think you sent me an email a while back about can, having vision problems considered a disability. Do you remember that?
1: Yes. Yeah, that's right. I wanted to find out how our vision issue could be considered a disability so that way children could get help under, you know, federal law. And I contacted the Senate Health Education, Labor and Pensions Committee. I even went to DC. I went to different senators' offices and nobody was interested in taking this on. Or some of the staff members said, okay, I'm going to look into it. And I followed up, I followed up, followed up, and they just disappeared. And then we had the shutdown, you know, last year. And then now we're obviously in a pandemic. Mm -hmm. So unfortunately, this is not on anyone's radar. And I even contacted Senator Rand Paul in Kentucky because he's an ophthalmologist. And I thought if anybody in the Senate would understand about how a visual disability is a problem and and should be considered a disability and children should get help. I thought it'd be him, but maybe because I'm not from Kentucky, I I couldn't make any, any inroads in his office. Okay.
0: Well, and I think that not everyone that has a visual problem like this that has trabismus or uh, amblyopia or any of the other you know, types of vision issues that we've discussed, they don't all consider it that it's a disabling condition. That's right.
1: That's right. They don't consider it a disabling condition. And some people, just like me, I didn't know it was a disabling condition until I realized the impact of it. Mm-hmm. And I have two aunts who have the same condition. And my mother has a distant cousin who has amblyopia. And my two aunts said it wasn't until I started talking to them about vision therapy and what I was learning that they realized that they had um, limitations in their life because of their vision, right? And, and so, it's it's kind of like one of the things that Dr. Oliver Sacks said in his article "Stereo Sue" about stereo blindness. It's kind of like if you're colorblind and you've never known what a color is, you can't tell someone who can't see red what red is. Right. You have to see the red color to see it. And so, explaining to somebody who doesn't see in 3D what it means to see depth is impossible Mm -hmm. because no matter how many words you use to describe it, if it's not something that we experience, we don't understand it. Right. And so for people who don't realize that they have a disability, of course they don't realize it's a disability and that they're limiting factors. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And it's frustrating to realize that you're not going to figure it out until you go see a doctor and get
0: tested. Right. I think that the people who have normal vision, can't appreciate what it's like either so it, it goes both ways none of us understand how the other is actually seeing it's very true it's very true and that was one of the major frustrations i had when
1: i was going through vision therapy and you probably saw it in my blog post mm-hmm. was that i felt so alienated because my friends did not understand what i was going through i mean it literally felt like i was cyclops explaining oh look at me i only have won't I? And this is my vision. People right. would just stare at me like I was from another planet. But when I opened up about my vision therapy, I found out that two of my friends had done vision therapy in the past. They just never told me mm-hmm. because I had nobody to tell, right? Kind of like I had no one to tell that I thought I had the special power that I could move objects. Right. They had no one to tell about vision therapy because, you know, people didn't know it. So the, the, that was helpful, you know, that I found other people. But I found that among my friends who you know did have normal binocular vision, interestingly enough, there were two people who, even though they didn't understand my lack of depth perception, they did understand what it was like to go through something that nobody else could understand. And they both had done Alcoholics Anonymous. Okay. They were recovering alcoholics. And you might think, like, what does recovering alcoholism have to do with not seeing in 3D? But as they were getting off of their alcohol, they were going through withdrawal symptoms. Um, things were hard from them. They were experiencing something that they didn't want to tell their coworkers and probably many of their friends because there's shame right now around being an alcoholic, right? So they understood what it was like to go through something that was so different. So I encourage people, you know, let's say you are doing vision therapy and nobody around you has any clue what this is like. I'm not saying you should go to an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting for non-alcoholic But amongst your friends, find people who have had to overcome something that other people didn't
0: understand. And those are the people who might give you the best support. Right. Well, and you have some tips in your book for ways that people can support their friends who are going through vision therapy. I do.
1: I do. I don't remember all of them right now. (laughs) (laughs) I wrote the book, you know, so many years ago. But I think one of them is not to make any assumptions. Ask the person what they need help with. You know, do you need me to drive you to vision therapy? Because there were times after vision therapy that I was exhausted. Oh my gosh. And I was seeing in double and I just came home and I crashed for like 10 or 11 hours. Mm -hmm. So find out what the person needs. You know, maybe the person needs a ride or the person just needs someone to take them somewhere. Right. And sometimes for those of us who, are especially as adults, we're experiencing something that is so radically different than anything we've seen in our lives. And it's so hard to explain. And it might be hard to talk after a vision therapy session. You might just want a friend to drive you, maybe not even play their car radio, maybe not chat. Right. All you need is a quiet ride home. You don't have to explain anything. You don't have to hear about someone's day, someone's problems, their marital problems, nothing. <laughs>
0: right. Yeah. Well, and you did mention also that sometimes you were up for things, and sometimes you weren't. And it was nice if someone would say, uh, or if they were to say, "Are how are you feeling today? Are you up for this kind of an activity right now, or is this not a good time?"
1: Yeah, exactly. That's a wonderful thing. And understand that some people—they're not. Maybe they're not being moody, but they're just. the the fatigue will come and go depending on how hard the vision therapy is. Mm -hmm. And and it's important to understand, look, if your friend can't come, maybe they're not being flaky. Maybe they are being flaky. (laughs) Really, they're just, they might be having a hard time and you just have to reschedule.
0: Right. But that doesn't mean they don't want to be included. Yes. Activities. It just means that that maybe wasn't the right activity at the right time. Exactly. Like one
1: thing that I mentioned in the book that really hurt me is a friend who invited me to a 3D movie along with a bunch of other people. And I was like, what part of I don't see in 3D do you not get? And he's yeah. like, well, what's the problem? Like how, I don't want to be in a movie theater where everyone else is like, wow, look at this. It's in 3D. And I'm the only one who can't see it. It's a really alienating experience. Mm-hmm. And he got it once I explained it to him, but I don't think he's, he's, You didn't understand why I was so mad. And I think that having gone through all this, I have to say to other people who are doing vision therapy is that no matter how much you explain something to some people, they're never going to understand it and they will hurt you inadvertently. And for me, it was really hard to get over, Mm -hmm. but I'm just warning you that this could happen.
0: (laughs) Be prepared. I I think 3D movies can be a big trigger. I I remember one time I took my children to the dollar movie. And they did show 3D movies there. And they were more. And that particular time we got there and realized that the only showing that was available right then was in 3D. And I snapped. (laughs) I said, Mm -hmm. well, I don't see in 3D. And we turned around and we left, you know. And I thought about that later. And I thought, wow, I really over... I kind of overreacted a little bit, you know, because it wasn't that much more. They might have actually enjoyed it. I didn't have to necessarily react that way. But what I decided later on was that I was, when I was in my therapy and I was starting to see a little bit of 3D, I decided to actually go to a 3D movie and see Mm -hmm. if I could see anything because I hadn't really ever done that. And it, it was actually a really great experience for me because I started to see just a little bit at that first time you know and kind of fell in love with that that whole concept of oh wow, maybe this really is possible for me you know yeah. I later came across an article about a guy who developed 3d vision by watching a 3d movie and I thought, oh there's this other way of looking at this whole issue of do I go to a 3d movie or do I not go to a 3d movie and it can be different for everyone.
1: Yes. I remember reading that article. I think the man was in San Diego. I remember him his article. Yeah. It's true. And you know, it could it you're right. Something that could trigger me might not trigger you. And your friends aren't gonna be aware of that or your children.
0: But I was that first time, you know. And I was like, Hey, I gotta look at this differently.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You know, interesting. I met a man who's colorblind and he said he can't go to 3D movies because he can't see red and green. So if The 3D glasses are red and green. He can't see them. They have to be different colors. Mm -hmm. And so he also got triggered, you know, when he couldn't go see a 3D movie. And I think, you know, maybe the story here, you know, the moral of the story after having had this real rupture with this friend of mine is that we can't expect other people to understand why we're mad because we can't see something. It's Mm -hmm. completely out of their... I want to say field of vision, but like (laughs) (laughs) experience. Yeah. (laughs) Right. And we can be mad. They may not get it, but we have to be responsible for our own emotions, our own, the fact that we're triggered. And it's not necessarily the other person's fault that we're mad. We're mad because we can't see something that everyone else can see. Mm -hmm. We're not, not necessarily mad because our friend doesn't
0: get it. Right. And it's just a reaction and it, I think yeah. that was one of the hardest things is just accepting first off that things, the way they were, the way they were at that time. And then getting to the point where I was willing to actually have the surgery, you know, and having the results that I had. Um, it, but it was, it was a journey just, I mean, you're, you everyone's journey is different that way. Yeah. Right. I remember also you mentioned quite a bit in the book about how it affected your sensitivity to sound and your, your language ability. And because Mm -hmm. you're a polyglot, you have all these languages in your brain that became confused because of the, I guess, the intensity of the vision therapy. Is that, would that be accurate? Correct.
1: Correct. Correct. I've always been sensitive to noise and sound. Um, like, even friends of mine remember, you know, when I was much younger, that, you know, I'd be like annoyed because people are yelling next to me. But it got much worse because of the vision therapy. And that's not something that I knew was going to happen. You know, when I went to see the optometrist, you know, who, who administered my vision therapy, he did tell me, you know, the side effects are you might get um, double vision. And I remember that even for Susan Berry's book. I think she mentioned it. That Mm-hmm. What I didn't realize was I was going to be extremely exhausted. Some people get through vision therapy and they're not exhausted. I consider them very lucky. I was not one of those lucky people. The fact that I was going to become super sensitive to sound and confuse my languages, nobody told me that was going to happen. Because again, the doctor didn't know you know, that I already had this sensitivity to sound. Sure. And so what happened was there were times where I'd be speaking, I think I was speaking in Spanish with like, maybe I was speaking in Russian with like the syntax of Spanish, but the words are in Russian. It was really weird. And when I'd like try to think of a word, I would think of it in the wrong language. And I would have to stop myself in the middle of sentences to collect what I wanted to say before I could say it. Kind Mm -hmm. of like if you see an elderly person who's maybe had a stroke and they're stopping and they're like, okay, how am I going to form the sentence? It wasn't that bad, but I was extremely aware of it. Right. Because I'd never had to do that before. And now I don't have that problem, but I haven't been doing vision therapy for a long time. And the sensitivity with sound was so bad that I would just have to leave places. Like I used to like to go out salsa dancing. I had to cut down on the salsa dancing. I would just, if someplace was too loud, I would just, I would just bail. And that was another thing is that friends of mine or family members who didn't have the noise sensitivity did not understand why I was so upset when it got truly really noisy. I remember going into a shopping mall and I was like, I got to get out of here. Too many people, too noisy. Forget it. Whatever I wanted to buy, I'm not going to buy it. I'll come another time. Right. And again, it's this thing of experiencing something that is so bizarre that no one has an explanation for. That your friends don't understand. But when I explained it to the ophthalmologist, not the optometrist who's doing vision therapy, but the ophthalmologist, he said, "Well, that makes sense. Your brain is 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 you know rewiring itself." Mm-hmm. and that is so intensive that the only way it can get you to stop processing all this visual information is to make you exhausted so that you'll go to sleep because mm-hmm. your brain has to rest and probably the sensitivity to noise was like my brain is already firing at so many with so many circuits with just changing you know with my vision that my hearing
0: was like it, my brain just couldn't handle it Right. Yeah. It's definitely a lot. <laughs> yes, <laughs> Yeah, definitely. I think we've covered a lot of ground here today. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure uh, what other thoughts you wanted to, to leave with people as we kind of wrap things up, but do you do you have something that you wanted to kind of touch upon as we're, as we're ending up here today? I do.
1: I do. And so I was originally, I was born in Russia and I came to the United States when I was a child. And I, I speak Russian and I speak various other languages. And a couple of years ago, I published, I think it was six videos in six different languages. It was French, Italian, Spanish, Portuguese, English, and Russian. So yes, yeah, six languages about my visual therapy journey and binocular vision. I talk about my book. And I did that because I knew that there was a real scarcity of information about vision therapy and about what it's like to live without seeing in 3D in other languages. Because I had people write to me before from different countries and they said, oh, I I don't, you know, English is not my first language, but I can't find anything in my language. So I've looked at this in English. So I thought it was important to publish these videos. And I've got an overwhelming response from Russia, people in Russian who are like, oh my gosh, you know, I never heard of this before, but this explains why I've had so much, so many problems. Can you help me find a doctor in Russia to do vision therapy? And I didn't know of any doctors in Russia, but I do know of a Russian-speaking optometrist on Staten Island in New York who does binocular vision work. Uh, Dr. Ilana, I think it's Gelfand Ponryev, or Maybe she has two last names. I might have um, mixed them up. Okay. And so I've referred patients to her, and she does vision therapy through Skype. And I'm not here you know, to, to advertise her, but the reason I bring this up is that it's important for those of us who speak other languages to talk about our experience in the languages that we speak, because we might be helping people who have absolutely no other access to information about this. And even if they can't access vision therapy in their country, because there are no doctors who do it, just knowing that what they're experiencing, but in my case of, of objects moving or of double vision, or of convergence insufficiency, meaning that you have trouble reading. Just the fact that you know that you're not the only person going through this
0: mm-hmm.
1: is already a huge, like it's like lifting a huge like weight off your shoulders. Right, I
0: agree. Yeah, I think that's really great that you have done that in all those languages. I remember when I went on and to see what you had, had done lately, and I saw all of those videos. I was amazed. That you could do it in all those languages, <laughs> and I had to scroll down to get to the right one. <laughs> yeah, I found the Spanish one first, and I'm like, "Oh, I can listen to that one," and I, because I understand Spanish, and so I listened to it. And then I scrolled down and I went, "Oh, it's in all these other languages. <laughs> if it doesn't do it in English. That would be smarter." <laughs> so that was awesome. I'm, and I, it's great to hear that it's getting that kind of response that people are actually able to find, find it and, and understand that there is some other options available for them too.
1: Yes, and like for people in Russia who didn't speak Russian, they wanted to read my book and I said, look, I only have it in English. Just download the PDF and use Google Translate. It's not going to be pretty, you know, the translation, but you'll get the general gist of, you know, what,
0: what was going on. Okay. And that's a great tool that we didn't have a few years ago too. So that's really nice.
1: That's right. That's right. When we knew and I started, this didn't you know, we didn't have that option. So mm-hmm. I'm really glad that you and I are part of a growing community of, of people who are talking about this. Right. And I really think what, what's what we need right now is a really famous person who has <laughs> a binocular vision program problem who's willing to write about it and talk about it. I contacted Johnny Depp because I read somewhere that he has a lazy eye. Sure. I heard back from him. So if you happen to know of any celebrities. Willing to get out there. That's what we need. Like we need someone famous to say, I suffered in school because of this. We need to have testing in school. We need kids to know about this. I think that's gonna turn the
0: tide. Definitely that could help too. Absolutely. I hadn't thought about approaching it from that perspective, but that is a great idea. (laughs) We'll have to walk together some more on that.
1: Yes, we're trying to find a famous person to be
0: on your podcast. Okay. Yeah. Let's see what we can come up with there. (laughs) They have to actually be willing to have either done vision therapy or do vision therapy though. Right. Good point. point. (laughs) That's I think the missing piece. So we'll have to do some more research on who may have had that issue and done something about it. Right. Mm -hmm. Sounds
1: good. I have an idea for you. Okay. I'll tell you later.
0: Yeah. Okay. Um, Well, I think we probably want to wrap up our episode today. And we can definitely get together again and do another episode when we have some more uh, things that we want to share with people. Very
1: good. And thank you very much for inviting me and for doing this podcast because, you know, for some people who have binocular vision issues, reading is really hard. So the fact that you have this as a podcast is going to make it accessible to people who
0: need audio input. Right. Well, that's my hope. So, again, thank you so much for being with me today and uh we'll go ahead and end our episode now. Thank you for listening to this episode of Healing Our Site. If you liked this episode, please subscribe, add a review and share it on your favorite social media. You can also ask questions or suggest a guest by visiting my Facebook page Healing Our Site. And more information is found on my website, HealingMySite.com. Thanks again for listening.